The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. We've got uh, questions on tap. I think uh, we have kind of a just a typical potpourri style Q&A show today. I'm sure we'll start with some Social Security. Uh, I'll remind everybody right now um, how to send questions into the show if you're interested. Best way to do that is to email Jim directly. Send the questions to jim at jimhelps.com. Put in the subject line a question for the podcast, and uh, you'll you'll be added to the queue, if you will. We can't guarantee we'll answer your specific question. Well, if we don't answer yours specifically, hopefully we'll get to a question that's substantially similar. And uh, there's also a chance that we'll answer your question very quickly because we always pull out at least one question that's come in just in the last week. Um, so you won't necessarily be placed at the back of the queue. You have a uh, one in however many questions we get that week chance of having your question addressed uh, pretty immediately. So we do appreciate everybody sending in questions. This is what makes the show possible. And uh, without further ado, I will bring Jim in so that we can dive into uh, questions and tackle as many as we can in the the time we've got. We've got... Uh, just short of an hour to uh, crank through as many as we can get to. Excellent. I know we're short on time again, folks. Uh, had a little glitch this morning on starting earlier, but Chris has a call uh, that he has to prep for, so it'll be kind of a hard break, as they call it in radio biz. Mm. A hard break coming up. Very professional sounding. <laughs> I thought so. thought so. Well, if you listen to this podcast, you'll know we are professional podcasters. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely, definitely. I mean, we go to great lengths to make these podcasts as smooth and seamless and no grammatical errors at all. Okay. Um, I'm surprised it goes as well as it does, actually. Speaking of errors, let me begin. Uh No, no, it wasn't an error. It was just I wanted to clarify something. Uh, And then we'll start with the Social Security questions. So last week, you know, it was the day we recorded the show. Um, where we talked about 
the gentleman who said, hey, should I use a buffered ETF or should I use a fixed indexed annuity for oh. my buffered part of the portfolio? So the last EDU show, not the last, the last EDU show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. So just mm-hmm. a couple of days ago. That's why yeah. I want to get to it. Okay. I just want to clarify something I said. Because as I was driving home, it was hot that day. It was like 85 that day. And today mm-hmm. it's cool and rainy. Well, rainy for Colorado folks means it's cloudy. You cannot see that orange globe in the sky. And every once in a while, some drizzle comes by. And sure. uh, that, that's, that's rain. So take it when you can get it. Anyways, my point is I was driving home and I was sucking on a Starbucks iced coffee because it was so hot. And it dawned on me. I didn't quite explain something the way I wanted to have explained it. So let me add this little bit of clarity for those of you who might be trying to do some research on your own. Because, again, when it came to those products... We just explained to you how we used them. We didn't say you needed to. We're not giving investment advice. We don't have a financial planning or investment agreement with any listener here. And we want you to look at the pros and the cons. So I thought we did a pretty good job on that EDU show of trying to list all that. But there was one thing I said. I said, and I gave the example, Chris, if you remember, because I was trying to describe how the uh, on a buffered ETF, the um, gain, if you will, steps up in protection level at every anniversary of, of the ET. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Yes, every anniversary of the ETF, which is generally a 12-month hold. So on the 12th month, usually the third Friday of the 12th month, the uh, options pay out and the ETF should perform as intended. That's why they call these defined outcome ETFs. That's how Morningstar categorizes them, defined outcome ETFs. They're defining what you should get within some parameters. And remember I gave the example, I said, say you put $100,000 in an ETF, buffered ETF, and it had a 15% cap tied to the S&P. And I said, let's just say the S&P earned 15 or more because you're capped mm-hmm. out at 15 I said you would have 115000 mm-hmm. and your protection amount would rise up. So if you held it and didn't sell it. Yeah, so you rolled it over, mm-hmm, essentially. Right, it just mm-hmm. automatically starts anew. You don't mm-hmm. have to buy and sell, buy and sell. Once you buy it, you can just hold it, and your protection jumps every year. Mm-hmm. So if you just held it, the 150 becomes your protected amount. But then I said you would actually have about and I said, let's pretend there was a 1% fee, you would have about $13,500. That's where I didn't explain it correctly. Most, not all, buffered ETFs, when they give you the cap, give it to you net, net of, fees. of the fee. Yeah, I didn't catch that gross. when you said that. So I'm glad you clarified that. But they don't all do that. Right. And when I was driving home, I was like, oh, God, I gave the example as if they're giving you the gross cap, not the net cap. If they if they gross the cap, if they tell you the cap is 15 minus the management fee, the way I described it is how you would, yes, you would have been left with that, even though the market was up 15, because they're taking 1%, theoretically speaking, you would have made 13.5%. The numbers don't quite work out that way, but you you follow the math. But most buffered ETFs, to simplify things, give you the net. So if they tell you you have a 15% cap, you have a 15% cap. So where I'm going with this is I wanted to caution people. 
first of all, you should never just buy the, a, a uh, strategy or as you do your own due diligence research, listeners, don't just knee-jerk reaction, choose the one with the highest cap. Ooh, this company's offering 15. This one's only offering 13.8. Find out if they're both grossing or netting the cap before you do that calculation. So I wanted to clarify that before we started. Okay. The firm that we use, which I refuse to name, they always, when they give their cap, it's the net. So if they say the cap is 15.8, that's after their fee. That way, going in, it really is as close to a defined outcome as you can get because they're telling you, you could theoretically walk away with 15.8 in this hypothetical example. You don't have to sit there and say, okay, but your management fee is 0.70, so I'm going to have to subtract that out. And No, they do it all for you. So I wanted to clarify that, Bob. Okay. Uh, Chris. Cool. Okay. All right, so let's jump into Social Security questions, as we always do. We have two questions that are very similar, so I thought we could address those. One came in recently, so it's kind of a new Social Security question of the week, and uh, one came in a very long time ago. Um, I'll read the one that came in a long time ago, and then you can answer that one, but the second one uh, is tied in close to that one as well. Okay. Let's see. Nope, he gives no hint of his state. This came in a while ago before we started playing this little game. Um, I can say he comes from a state. Well, if I that would be too easy of a hint. I'll say it. Where uh, Warren Buffett is known to inhabit. Mm. That's the fine state of Nebraska. Nebraska, yes. He lives in that was an easy Omaha one. That was, area. that was an easy yeah. hint. The Omaha area, right, mm-hmm. right. Okay. All righty. He says, Dear Jim and Chris, this is George from Nebraska. I love you, show. I've been listening for about a year. A few weeks ago, I heard you talk about your oh, prior police career. That's me, not you. That caused me to reflect on my own time as a police officer. I completely understand what you mean when you talk about pe- meeting people who are Mr. and Mrs. Other Guy. And then he goes into uh, how police, policing has, has taught him to think divergently and his relations with his wife and everything. I won't get into. I wanted to read that first bit, folks, before I get into a Social Security question. That is the point that I was trying to make many times when we talk about our concept of trying to come up with the fun number to encourage people to feel comfortable spending in their go-go fun years. The best way that I came up with helping people feel comfortable spending in that initial phase of retirement, that's what we call the go-go phase of fun spending, you don't know how long that's going to last. But it's from the point that you retire to the point where you start to slow down and enter the slow-go and no-go phase. It's nice if you retire at 58 to think, oh, guys, I'm 58. I'm going to have a 12-year go-go phase to at least 70, maybe even more. Maybe I'm going to have a 17-year go-go phase to 75. That's possible, is it not, Chris? Totally possible. Maybe beyond. Some people that that kind of win the, the health lottery can be very healthy and active for a very extended period of time. Exactly. But it doesn't always work that way. And that was... When I came up with the concept of fun number and my approach to retirement, 
In the back of my mind, I never forgot because the eight years that I served as a police officer, I constantly met, quote unquote, the other guy. We always think the bad things are going to happen to someone else. I'm not going to have this medical condition. I'm not going to have that. My family's not going to be impacted by this or that. I'm going to have a 12 or 17 year go-go fun period. It doesn't always work out that way. And that was my point. You spend eight years constantly meeting the other guy day in and day out. You begin to realize the other guy is a lot more common than people think. And that was always one of my beefs with the safe withdrawal rate approach to retirement planning. Because I saw it time and time and time again. People needlessly curtailing fund spending in this misguided notion they couldn't take out more than 2 or 3 or 4 or 4.8 or 5.279% of their portfolio every year as they wanted to keep their probability of success at 8.9 or higher or whatever silly thing that some of those uh, online programs walk you guys through I can never understand why you would want to curtail spending on fun because you don't know how long you're going to have left. And this life is not a dress rehearsal for the real thing. This is it. And you're at the last phase of your life. So am I. I'm not immune to that. I'm going to be 60 shortly. I'm not stupid. I know that I might not be here in 25 years, yet Jacob and Andrew in our office are going to be younger than I am today, younger than Chris is today in 25 years. So it got me to thinking that if you could just look into your portfolio and figure out how much can be spent on fun, then just give yourself a fun budget for the go-go years and go spend it. Anyways, I got the idea for that, Chris, or the feeling for that, constantly meeting the other guy. And I wanted to read his sentence there because it was another cop saying, yeah, Jim, I get it. I know what you're talking about. I met the other guy all the time, too. And he shared how his wife sometimes didn't quite understand that. People who don't do what we did for a living don't quite understand that the other guy is quite common. Okay, anyways, just wanted to say that. I have a very general question for Chris on Social Security, government pension offset, and windfall elimination provision. I know there's many details, but perhaps you can speak in generalities. I'm in my mid-50s. I have a pension of $72,000 a year. My wife works and is around the same age as me. Before I started in public service, I worked various jobs where I contributed to Social Security. I checked with the Social Security website and it indicated I have over 40 quarters and I'm eligible for benefits. I also noticed, excuse me, I believe it indicated I was on target to receive 530,000 at my full retirement age. Not 530,000. Oh, $530. Wow, that would have been good. <laughs> yeah. $530,000. That would be the single most impressive Social Security benefit I've ever heard of, right? <laughs> wow, okay, yeah. Miss, misspoke. There, there was uh, three less zeros in that number. Okay, all righty. We all know I could increase my benefit if I waited until 70. If I never contribute to Social Security again, I assume that number will average down 
but let's just assume I was on track to receive a small benefit of about 500 a month at age 67. I don't know why he assumes, Chris, his, his 530 will go down. I, I, if he never, I have a really, sl- just so we don't forget to tackle that because people might question that. Uh, the benefit estimate that he's looking at is assuming that he's going to make the same as he made last year as far as what he made within a Social oh, Security job right. moving forward. And if that last year was zero, then that 530 is actually quite reliable. That, you know, as time goes by, it's not going to likely go down because they're already assuming he's not going to earn any more uh, in a Social Security job as long as that was the case last year and the year before. So it sounds like he's you know, been out of the Social Security jobs for a while, so that benefit probably won't go down for him. So he doesn't uh, really need to worry about that. Okay. Do you know how far the WEP will be able to reduce that benefit? I understand my benefit cannot be eliminated, but I know they can, WEP can cut into it. Where I am trying to go with this is, if my benefit is reduced to, say, 250 a month, and the difference between that and waiting to age 70 for the extra 30%, I would likely start taking money as early as possible, since the extra money for waiting would be less significant. Also, since my wife gets Social Security, and if I can claim 800 a month on her benefit, How much of that do you estimate would be eliminated? Do I have it correct that my $6,000 a month pension will essentially nullify any spousal benefits I might get? I understand that if two-thirds of my pension, which is $4,000, is greater than my spousal benefit, that benefit will not be paid. I will appreciate any insight you might have. Thanks for your time. And he gives his name as George. Okay. Um, yeah, I can answer and fill in the, the gaps, hopefully, for people. This is something uh, WEP and GPO, the windfall elimination provision and the government pension offsets, are quite common in the world. There's a lot of people that face these um, you know, aspects of Social Security when they work in a governmental job at some point during their career, and then either they or their spouse has Social Security benefits in addition to that government pension that he's describing is $6,000 a month. But they're very confusing. The the, the rules are kind of convoluted. So let's first um, separate the two very cleanly. WEP applies to one thing and one thing only. WEP applies to your own Social Security benefit. Full stop. Um, the GPO applies to spousal or survivor benefits that you might receive on someone else's record. Full stop. So let's tackle them one at a time. So the WEP for him, let's just, let's use his numbers that he asked us to. He he said, let's assume he makes he's got a benefit at uh, his full retirement age of five hundred dollars a month based on his own record. And he was right. There are limitations where WEP will never completely eliminate your Social Security benefit. It can only reduce it. And that's because it um, simply changes the formula 
that they use to calculate your benefit, and it never changes it so drastically to eliminate your benefit. And there's another limiting factor. So let me pull out one limiting factor is the WEP offset can never be more than half of your non-covered pension. So it can never be more for him than $3,000. Well, it's going to be a lot less than that because there's other limiters, but that first rule is in place for people that have a really small government pension. Maybe they only worked in the government for a short time and have maybe a $700 government pension. They limit the WEP reduction to half that amount, $350 a month. So there's that. Now, that's not going to protect him because his government pension's nice and big. Half of that, still a huge number. The other thing that limits WEP is it only affects essentially the percentage of the um, your AMI, your averaged indexed monthly earnings, up to that first bend point. And what I mean by that is when you have earnings in your earnings record at Social Security and they calculate your benefit, the first amount of your average earnings is actually replaced in your Social Security benefit at a 90% replacement ratio. And what I mean by that is the first, and, and this is a 2023 number. In 2023, they look at your, and I'm not going to go into how to calculate your Amy so we don't make this too long, but once they get your average indexed monthly earnings from your earnings record, the first $1,115 of that average earnings over your lifespan is $1,115. They replace it at 90% in a typical calculation. Now, they do that because if someone really has just that for wages, they were a very low-wage worker, and Social Security needs to replace a substantial amount of that to keep them, you know, help them stay out of poverty. However, if you have a government pension, you're really not a low-wage worker. So they say, well, it's not fair for us to give you that big 90% replacement on those first, you know, $1,115. We're going to reduce it to 40%. That's the default. So essentially, the maximum WEP offset for someone turning 62 in 2023, and I say it like that because these, these bend points I'm referring to change every year, and the bend points that apply to you are the bend points that are in place in the year you turn 62. So, but it's a good reference for our discussion today. Half of 1115 is what, $557.50? That's the maximum WEP offset for someone turning 62 in 2023. 557, we'll call it. We'll keep the 50 cents off of there. So that's the maximum that uh, it could replace. But remember, and it might sound at first like, gee, he's, he's only going to have a benefit of 500. The, the offset's going to be 557. It'll wipe him out completely. No. The only time that you will have the full $557 WEP offset is if your benefit is greater than the $1,100 roughly. Okay. Now, his is much lower. So what they're doing is they're going to use a different percentage replacement. Instead of 90, they're going to use 40%. So that's effectively going to take his $500 benefit that's being estimated, which is based on a 90% replacement ratio because it's so small, and he's going to get it at 40%, which is going to bring it down to about 225, 230, somewhere in there. So you can see it won't eliminate it. It just changes the formula. So instead of getting the 500, which would be 90% of the first bend point, he's going to get 40% of the first bend point. 
there's another limiting factor that might save him a little more, depending on how much he actually worked in a Social Security job. If he has more than 20 years of substantial participation in Social Security jobs, so this is a higher threshold than just earning a quarter of credit. He, had, he mentioned he earned, earned the 40 quarters, which is what entitled him to a benefit in the first place. They have a higher threshold that if you participate substantially in Social Security more than 20 years, they'll start to give you more than that 40% replacement, even though you have a government pension. And if you have 30 or more years, then they don't apply the WEP at all. Now, just to give you an idea of how much, what earnings it takes for a year to count as substantial participation in Social Security in 2023, that figures almost $30,000. So you've got to have a decent part-time job at least in those years for it to count towards this, you know, possible 30 years to a uh, avoid WEP completely. So I, I mentioned that I, it doesn't sound like he probably has enough years because if he had 20 or more, his benefits likely going to be more than $500. $500 indicates he probably had a, you know, 12 or 15 years or, or something like that, but not 20 years of sub, sub, substantial earnings. So I'm just guessing there, but I wanted to point that out for others that are kind of following along with how this might work. There is a get out of jail free card for WEP, and that is having 30 or more years of substantial earnings in the system. And if you want to go look up for every year back to 1937 of what substantial earnings in each of those years the, the limit was, because the limit changes all the time. Back in 2000, you only had to earn just over $14,000 for that to count as a substantial earnings year. So you can get that whole chart on the WEP pamphlet that Social Security, it's right in that, it's a, it's a two-page pamphlet that explains WEP, and, and everything is in that two pages, including the um, list of what were substantial earnings in every year all the way back to 1937. So if you just Google SSA WEP, uh, it's a PDF that comes up directly from the Social Security Administration. I'll give you the specific publication number. It's 5 so you can also look for that publication that explains web so so that's that his you know calling out of 250 maybe his if his benefits only 250 he'd look at it a different way than if he got the full 500 uh the 250 he mentioned was darn close to his reality for web uh it's probably a little less than that actually uh, closer to 225 uh, using the $500 figure if his if if we stick to the 530 he mentioned then 250 is about right so his benefit after WEP is probably 250. Now let's get to the government pension offset or GPO. The GPO applies to any benefit he might receive from his wife's work record, not his own. His wife's work record could normally generate either a spousal benefit while she's alive or a survivor benefit if she predeceases him. Well, the government pension offset is far more severe in its implications. The government pension offset says if you have a non-covered pension like he does, the $6,000 a month he named, any spousal or survivor benefit you might otherwise be entitled to will be re uh, reduced $2 for every $3 of that pension. So two-thirds of his $6,000 pension is $4,000. The only way he would ever receive a spousal or survivor benefit from his wife is if his spousal or survivor benefit exceeded that $4,000. Well, 
Well, there's no way in this day and age that spousal benefit will be 4000 That would mean her benefit's 8000 and they haven't grown to that m- amount yet. Survivor benefit, maybe, but actually I think he, he mentioned that his, the benefit he might otherwise receive from his wife was only 800 so she doesn't have a very big benefit. So I'll state right here for him that two-thirds offset will completely eliminate any benefit he might get. Now, people are saying, whoa, that seems unfair, you know, just because he worked for the government, uh, he loses whatever. But if, if they both were in Social Security and he had a big $6,000 Social Security benefit, which it can't be quite that big yet, um, and she had that smaller benefit, when she passed, he wouldn't get any of hers anyway. So the GPO actually opens the door for possibly receiving a survivor benefit, uh, whereas if you both had Social Security, you never get to keep any of the other person's benefit if they die and they have a lower benefit than you do. So the GPO is not inherently unfair at all. WEP is questionable. WEP, there's you know people on both sides that that uh, that uh, argue about its. Uh, uh, fairness issues and and if the if any either of the two were to go away uh, due to congressional action it's probably going to be the WEP first because GPO actually does make sense it it more aligns or equalizes things between households where there's two social security recipients versus a household where there's one social security and one non social security uh, uh, earner so. Um, Last thing I'll mention is when you have your own benefit that's affected by WEP, like he does, and then there's a potential survivor or spousal benefit affected by GPO, they actually apply them kind of separately to different pools. Uh, I don't want to go too deep into this, but just be aware that you always are paid your own benefit before they pay you a spousal offset. And if you're affected by WEP and GPO, they'll apply WEP to your piece and then GPO to the spousal offset piece. Um, so the number is kind of a little messy when you, when uh, when that's the case. So I think I tackled everything that he asked in in his question, and as well as kind of line things out generically for other people that might not have his same numbers. I think you did, and it's going to make uh, the next question a lot easier for you to answer. That's why I kind of doubled these up. Because this this person had a very very similar question. At least I think it's similar. You may you may disagree, but I think it was pretty similar. Okay, let me get to that question. See if first they give a hint. Nope, I do not see a hint. Okay. Well, we will call uh, this woman Georgette. She doesn't even give the state she's from, so we. I uh, can't play even trying to create my own question for you like I did. Okay, it says, Happy Easter. This is a new question, obviously. Happy Easter to both you and your family. Love living, listening to your show. I have a question that I can't seem to find an answer to. I work in local government, so I don't pay for Social Security benefits, which means when I retire in 2025, I will get a government pension and no Social Security. My husband, on the other hand, works for a private company with Social Security. So when my husband retires at 67 and starts drawing his full Social Security pension, I know that because of the windfall elimination provision, I will not be able to draw 50% of his Social Security benefits as a spouse since my pension is higher than 50% of his Social Security. 
you might want to correct there. It's not the, it's not WEP, right? It's GPO. Right. So what we just kind yeah. of I, what I walked through with the previous email, uh, spousal benefit is what she's talking about. And because of the two-thirds reduction uh, factor for GPO, unless her government pension is really small, which if she has no Social Security, that means she worked in the government pension for a long time. So it's likely to be plenty big enough to eliminate any potential spousal benefit that she might receive from uh, from the husband. So, But it's the GPO that's affecting that, not WEP. Right. I've always remembered it that WEP affects yours. GPO affects essentially your spousal or survivor. Right. Okay. But if I predecease him, he will get 75% of my government pension. So my question is, if he predeceases me, would I be able to receive his Social Security pension as a surviving spouse? Thank you so much. And feel free to correct any of my assumptions if they were wrong. Well, I think we corrected the first one. It's GPO you need to be concerned with uh, for a survivor spousal benefit. And it will be GPO that you'll have to worry about for a survivor benefit. Right. WEP reduces yours and you don't have any. So WEP's not going to impact you, but GPO will. Chris, why don't you help her out? Will she get any survivor benefits? It's going to come down to a math problem, I think. Yeah, and before I answer her question, I want to touch on a question she didn't ask. She kind of of mentioned a little thing in passing, but I want to point it out for people. Um, If she said if she predeceased him, he would get 75% of her government pension. So she's selected or planning to select the option with her pension where he would receive 75% of it. He would not suffer any GPO or WEP consequences because he did not earn the non-covered pension. That's kind of um, you know, an odd benefit to these mixed couples, we'll call them, where one's in Social Security, one's not that the one in Social Security, if they're the ones who outlive their spouse with the government pension, any government pension survivorship that goes to them flows to them 100% free and clear from any GPO or WEP offset issues because they did not trigger either one of those things because they participated in Social Security. So just a little extra fact on there. So, But then her question, if if he predeceases her, could she get any of his... Social Security, survivor pension. Possibly. It all comes down to that two-thirds thing. What they're going to look at and see if her, if two-thirds of her government pension is bigger than the survivor benefit, which would have been 100% of what he was either claiming when he died or could have claimed if he died, I'm sorry, could have claimed the night before he died if he wasn't claiming yet. If her pension two-thirds of it, is bigger than that, she will not receive anything. If two-thirds of her pension is not bigger than the survivor benefit, she will get the difference. She will get the difference. So it's possible. So let's say her benefit was, you know, um, well, the numbers from the last person would work. Let's say her benefit was 6000 Her pension was 6000 And her, so two-thirds of that was 4000 That's her government pension, just like the last question. If the survivor benefit from the husband was $4,500, which it could be that big. I just saw the first one um, so far to come across my desk with an actual client. 
uh, that hit $5,000 just happened recently. So because of inflation, et cetera, the work, we're getting into those potential maximum benefits with Social Security. Uh, so let's say $4,500 was the survivor benefit. She would get $500. They're going to reduce it two-thirds of her pension. So that we, if hers is $6,000, two thirds of that is $4,000. They'll say, we're going to offset the $4,500 by that $4,000. We'll give you the difference. We'll give you the $500. So you can get some of that, where if, if they both had Social Security and hers was bigger than his, all of his would be lost. So here's a prime example of what I mentioned a moment ago or a little bit on that other question that it's possible you could get a little benefit by having this situation where if you both had Social Security, she wouldn't have gotten a dime of his. If hers was a dollar more than his benefit, his goes away completely. The survivor only keeps the higher of the two when they both participated in Social Security. Here's a circumstance that even though the GPO is pretty aggressive in its reduction. Two-thirds of your pension is the, re- is the reduction factor. Um, it still leaves room for some survivor benefit to flow to you. So um, I know those weren't her numbers. She didn't give us her numbers, but they happen to work out well uh, as an example to explain what she might face. Okay, perfect. All righty. In an effort to keep going, mm-hmm. let's get into, because uh, we still have time, right? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Okay, we got two questions in uh, last week, so we're going to make them the new questions of the week. They're very, very close, similar to these Social Security questions. We're very, very close. Uh, And it had to do when we were chatting and answering a question about an islet last week uh, to uh, help reduce estate taxes. Mm -hmm. So or how an islet could be used to reduce estate taxes and also guarantee an inheritance. So two people wrote in. I'm going to actually read both questions because they're so close. And then I'll just kind of try to butt back and forth between them and an answer. Uh, I am not an estate planning attorney, folks. Everybody knows I like to geek out on estate planning. And speaking of that, I will actually be in Kansas City. I will be flying to Washington shortly, folks, for my Ed Slot training. And the reason I mention that is we have been told we're going to go over Secure 2, um, hopefully quite deeply. And then I said I would dedicate some EDU shows and Q&A shows to secure two when I come back. So the good news is I will be in Washington in two weeks. Today is the 14th. I will be in Washington uh, on the 26th, 27th, and 28th of April for my studies with the Ed Slot Group. Then I'm going to fly home real quickly uh, to Massachusetts from Washington, D.C. My dad's not doing too well. Uh, He sadly suffered a heart attack, but he's doing good for an 88-year-old man who had a heart attack. And he's getting stronger and better, and I'm going to go see him. But uh, they did have to put him in assisted living, and he's not too pleased on that, but he's slowly getting used to it. So anyways, there's a little update on, on my dad. But I will be leaving Massachusetts and flying to Kansas City. That's where I'm trying to go with this. And I'll actually be flying in, I think, on the... 3rd of May, and I'm going to attend the Kansas City, uh, which is the Midwest, if you will, uh, Estate Planning Council meeting on the 4th and 5th of April. So if there's anyone in Kansas City who might want to get together for a The 4th and 5th of April has passed us. Oh, 4th and 5th of May. I'm sorry. Okay. Just just want to make sure we're we're all in the same year here. I'm talking next year. Yeah, I'm talking next year. 4th and 5th of April next year. No. Anyways... Um, 
If somebody wants to get together while I'm in Kansas City, fire me off an email right now. I think I will have availability. I can't promise. It's going to be kind of a quick trip because I will fly back to Colorado on May 6th. Uh, But I do believe uh, Thursday and Friday, the 4th and 5th, I should be available after classes. I certainly won't be available during classes. And I'm going because I just like learning about estate planning. These two questions have to do with estate planning. I'm pretty sure I know the answer, so I'm going to answer them. But with a big caveat, I might not be 100% right. I believe I am, but if I'm not, uh, anyone can feel free to point it out to me and I'll correct myself. But I think this is fairly straightforward and easy enough that even yours truly, who is by no means an estate planning expert, but thoroughly enjoys geeking out on estate planning, can uh, answer this and, and go from there. But, uh, okay, so let's get to the first question. This one's the shorter of the two. You've got two hints too, Chris, so be Mm. ready. you got to guess two states. This first one, his hint, we're going to call him George. He said to tell you he lives in the state where the creator of the Peanuts comic strip was born. And don't Google it. I'm not. I don't. I play along. Oh, where was Charles Schultz from? His daughter lives in Colorado, doesn't she? I think she's in Lovely. Man, I've heard this. I should know this. Um, Illinois? Close. Minnesota. Oh, okay. According to him. We do not proof these right. questions, we, folks. We don't fact check the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not fact checking. So I'm just going with what the gentleman wrote. Okay, this is again, folks, in reference to the uh, little discussion we had. Uh, mm. so I think someone was in Washington State and considered yeah. using an islet to help reduce state and, estate taxes. And islet stands for Irrevocable Life Insurance Trust. For those, Oh, I'm sorry, yes. Yep. Don't know. Okay. So it begins, as you no doubt know, a disclaimer trust, and I'll explain what this is after, folks. A disclaimer trust can be used as a way to reduce estate taxes after the death of a second spouse, especially in states like Minnesota with a state estate tax, where the estate tax exemption is not portable. How is a disclaimer trust that is established after the death of the first spouse taxed with respect to trust income? Is the maximum ordinary income tax rate reached after the 2023 14,451 rate? As I'm trying to make sense of how he wrote it. What he's asking there, folks... Trusts have compressed tax rates. I think I have to clarify this a little for the people. Trusts have compressed tax rates, and they will hit the highest income tax bracket of 39. Is it? No, it's not 39.6. Isn't it 36 is the highest right now? 37 right now. It's 37? Okay. We'll hit 37%. Not after 400 plus thousand, which is what an individual or a couple who don't have money in a trust need to earn before they pay 37% on their income. A trust needs very, very, very little income before it's taxed high. He is correct. In 2023, that limit 
is $14,451 of income, not assets, income paid into the trust. So he's asking, is the maximum ordinary income tax rate reached in a disclaimer trust after 14451 of income as it is with other trusts? If so, I suspect this would definitely diminish the value of disclaiming very large amounts. I'll get back to what he's getting at. It's very similar to a question we got from another person. Okay, he says, hi, and he lists everybody. He says, thank you so much for your podcast. This has helped me immensely, and I enjoy it on my walks. I am, oh, I almost gave away the state. Wow, I almost read the state he's from before giving you the hint. He has an easy hint and a hard hint for you, Chris. He's mm. being nice. Okay. If I give you the easy hint, you'll get it. It was even easier than where is Warren Buffett from. So I'll start with the hard hint. And this one got me. I would have, this one got me. I would have never guessed this. I live in the state that has the most glaciers of all of the 48 continuous, contiguous states. Well, it sounds like a trick question. One would think Alaska, but it might very well be Montana. Well, first of all, Alaska is not one of the lower 48. Oh, I didn't listen to that part. I was just, I was, okay, then, <laughs> then my answer is Montana. You are wrong. Really? So let me give you, yes, let me give you the easy hint. Now you'll, huh. guess, now you'll guess this state in a heartbeat. Hint number two, and he put in parentheses, easy for Chris. I live in the state where Starbucks was founded. There are more glaciers in Washington than in Montana, where the where Glacier National Park exists? I'm not fact-checking. I'm just reading. Oh, well, you learn something <laughs> new every day. That surprised me as well. Yeah. yeah, that surprised me as well. I would have never, wow. never guessed that. Yes. Huh. See the things you learn on the Retirement and IRA show, yeah, folks? Fascinating. Much, much more. <laughs> fascinating little tidbits. He says, on to my question. Since Washington State has an estate tax threshold of $2 million, I am looking to safe, looking for safeguards in case my wife and I pass away in order to pass money to our children. Our money is split in cash-like holdings, always taxable holdings, sometimes taxable holdings, and never taxable holdings, combining for about $5 million right now. Depending on the age we die, we may or may not have more than $2 million. But I want to have something in place, an estate plan in place, just in case. So he is planning, Chris, to spend some good wealth in his retirement. And that is good. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. That's what you created it for. Him and his wife have $5 million now. They hope when they die, they have $2 million. They might have more if they die early. They might have less if they die later. But he's put a good, I would assume, a good plan in place and definitely a spending plan. He realizes what a lot of you do-it-yourself Vanguard engineers, what we affectionately call VGs, and we know not everyone listening has their money with Vanguard and not everyone listening is an engineer. But you guys all have engineer-like personalities, at least when it comes to personal financial planning. So I like to call them VGs. But we always tell you guys one of the hottest things you're going to have because you create wealth for your entire life through your work, through your savings, through your investing, everything you love to do, you are loath to spend it. 
And we try to help you overcome that fear, beginning by helping you look at your assets as deferred spending, not savings or investments anymore. It's spending. That's what you're deferring it for. I was very pleased when I read his email because I thought this is a man who gets it and they're going to spend. Now, he didn't indicate how they're going to go through three million. Maybe they're going to gift some while they're alive. Maybe they're just going to spend it. Who, Who cares? But I was pleased to see that he's not doing the calculations that we so often see, Chris, uh, of a safe withdrawal rate that, wow, and and if you do this, you might die with $47 million, as if that's something to strive for. And it's just, I I never quite understood that. But here's someone who who wants to spend as well. So I like that. Okay. You mentioned using an irrevocable life insurance trust to pass money on to children. But this seems to imply you must have a known amount you wish to pass on. But in my case, it's unknown. We might die with more than $2 million or we might die with less, depending on how old we are and how much we spend. I want to pause there. An islet, yes, can pass a defined amount, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, quote-unquote, the defined amount. An islet, especially in a state like Washington, where you are going to have an estate tax at $2 million, or worse, Massachusetts, where it's at $1 million is the exemption. If you want to try to optimize an inheritance for a child, you want to get it to them income tax-free and estate tax-free. Now, I don't think the size of state you and your wife have at $5 million is going to be subject to federal estate taxes unless certain politicians get in and have their way, but I don't see that happening. I think even if the exemption amount drops to $5 million, which it's scheduled to do uh, in 2026, January 1st of 2026, they will adjust that for inflation over the past 10 years. So it's estimated to be about $7.5 to $8.5 million when they make the adjustment, and it'll keep rising from there. And with portability, you and your wife can double that. So you'll probably have 14 to 16, maybe 17 million combined. I don't see federal estate taxes, Chris, being an issue for this gentleman. But state, I don't know what Washington's going to do. Are they going to raise the 2 million? Are they going to lower the 2 million? So when you use an eyelet, one of the strategies is to try to leverage the benefits of leaving an asset that will be income tax-free, which is what our first listener wrote about, Chris. He's saying, hey, is this correct? If, if my um, disclaimer trust, if that trust has uh, more than 14000 I don't have it in front of me, 400 something dollars, 14452 or whatever it was, mm-hmm. of, of income, is it going to have to pay 39.6% on everything else? And he's thinking, God, maybe I'll save estate taxes, but I'm going to get nailed in income taxes. Well, with an islet, folks, the money that pays into the islet from the life insurance will be free of income tax because life insurance death benefit is not considered income and is not taxed as income. Right. And at least in the state of Washington where he lives... It will also be exempt, assuming he works with a Washington uh, estate planning attorney and they put the the islet together properly. It should be exempt from estate 
taxes in Washington as well. And what we often do isn't to necessarily have clients define a dollar amount they want to leave, although many do. When you're dealing with insurance, it really comes down to how much can I buy based on my health? And what is the cost per million dollars of coverage? That's how we tend to look at it. So people would go through underwriting, find out what a second-to-die guaranteed universal life policy would cost. That way they can benefit from the the, uh, fact that they're insuring two lives, not one, which makes the cost of the insurance significantly lower. And they're looking to leave an inheritance, so you want the inheritance to pay at the death of the second spouse. And really, a lot of people, Chris, will say, okay, wow, it's going to cost us $9,800. I'm making this number up, folks. $9,800 per million of coverage per year. We're willing to spend $15,000 a year max. And you just simply back into it, and it turns out to be X amount of dollars that you can leave. A lot of people go into it with a budget, Chris, of how much they want to pay per year on the policy, And then they're going to back in and just figure out how much that buys. You don't have to look at it as a way of trying to say, I specifically want to give this much. Mm -hmm. You might want to look at it instead and say, I specifically don't want to spend more than this much every year on the strategy. And then you look to optimize that death benefit. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, and the way I think I, I see a lot of people using this technique is to essentially give them the freedom to do what this the, the couple from Washington was implying. They have, you know, five million or whatever, but they hope to have less than that later, which means they're gonna, you know, spend into principal uh, and having this kind of uh, yearly expense of the premiums, which is gonna generate this you know, define this benefit of some kind, this death benefit of some kind within the islet uh, for benefit of the kids gives them kind of this, uh, uh, you know, plateau or foundation that they know the kids are going to at least get that. They might get an extra and that that extra is going to be based on, you know, how things go, how spending goes, what age they pass away, etc. But we can then spend more aggressively because now we know we've created a floor for the kids as far as their inheritance goes. And if that floor is adequate or if it's not quite adequate, maybe you you reserve a little bit more of your liquid assets to to do that or you've got a principal residence or some of these other things that that, that, that you could kind of embellish what you could, were able to obtain from the life insurance. The, the life insurance isn't necessarily, uh, doesn't become the replacement for all other inheritance. It's just a component which happens to be able to pass to them if done properly outside of the income tax and estate tax world, um, which doesn't mean you can you know do that with your entire inheritance, but at least it's a chunk. Okay. Perfect. I, I agree with that immensely. So he continues, my attorney mentioned to us using a credit shelter trust as an option. And I was wondering if you could explain the pros and cons between the two. I also am concerned about taxes on the money in the credit shelter trust. As you always mention, the crazy amount of taxes on income that trusts are subject to. Does income to a trust mean capital gain money? After it has been put into the trust? If so, we may just want to pay the 20% on estate taxes instead, but I have no idea how taxes are handled on a credit shelter trust. 
two very similar questions, Chris, saying, hey, we might be able to reduce estate taxes, but are we going to get nailed on income taxes, negating the whole benefit? The answer to that is, it depends. Mm -hmm. So let's back into this a little. Well, it'll have to be kind of tight, so don't wander too far off here. We're getting close to our hard cut. Oh, do you want to pause and I'll finish answering? Because we gave a few bits of insight right now. We'll mm-hmm. pick up next. He has a client meeting shortly, Chris. Uh, people. Mm-hmm. Chris, has, Chris, Chris has the meeting people. Well, can't, can't speak <laughs> correctly. I can't do this briefly, Chris. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, that's I, a, I, I as want, soon as I heard you I, going with another thing to compare against, I was worried we were going to. Right. Um, so I, I apologize. We've never done this in the history of the Q and of, of, of a show period. Uh, continue a question. We've continued EDU shows, but I don't think we ever stopped and said, I'll answer the rest next week. But I'm going to answer the rest next week because I wanted to get a little bit deeper. Teach mm-hmm. people, what is a disclaimer trust? What is a credit shelter trust? Yeah, really. How does it relate to the old AB bypass trusts? Are they correct that they could get nailed in income taxes even though they might reduce their estate taxes? There's a lot of little moving pots here, yeah. so we'll pick up this question next week. Okay, that's probably a good idea because I do think we need to do it justice and not kind of rush through it. So, okay, okay, so we'll do that. And then, and these are all good questions came in. A couple of great uh, uh, social security questions, and then these uh, uh, trust questions as well. So, um, keep sending in your questions. Like I said, we sometimes pull them out quick. One of, the, one of these social security questions came in just uh, recently here, last couple of weeks. So. Um, keep them coming and uh, we'll be back with you next week with a continuation of this show so it'll be kind of new and a little bit of this old that we left over from before <laughs> so so we appreciate it well, and uh, yeah go ahead Jim I, I was going to say well in in professional recording parlance we, we gave them a teaser isn't that what it is yeah. you know, or a cliffhanger kinda, one of the others it's kind of like when we were growing up I mean now with streaming it's different and you would be yeah. watching one of those sitcoms or something, and it's getting really good. And then it says, to be, to be continued. continued. <laughs> exactly. So here we go. To be continued next week. So thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next week with continuation. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556.
The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 